listening to the Batman Universe Commentaries, brought to you by thebatmanuniverse.net. Join the staff of the Batman Universe as we watch another exciting incarnation of the Cape Crusader from his extensive media library. Hello everyone and welcome to the Batman Universe Commentaries and this is the commentary for Batman The Dark Knight Returns Part 2. Joining me today is... This is John. This is Ed. And joining us again, you last heard him on the Batman Universe when we did the commentary for Superman Batman Apocalypse. And since of course this movie involves Superman, we brought back... Michael Bailey of Fortress of Baileytude, as well as his number of other podcasts that he runs, including <laughs> Views of the Long Box, as well as Bailey's Batman podcast. Michael Bailey, welcome, Michael. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so we are going to do part two. You probably already have heard the commentary for part one. Some of us were not as fond of part one as possibly part two, and might be the other way around. So. Going into this film, before we actually see it, what um, what did you think about just the publicity for the film and the possibility of the film being made, and what were your expectations going into it? If everybody remembers back to The Dark Knight Returns Part 1, I absolutely panned it. And I must admit, looking at the publicity, I wasn't all that much more hopeful for the film. To me, they picked some really bad clips, and... I thought this is going to be truly, truly awful. It's a hard comic to adapt anyway, and hopefully they've done a good job on it, but I'll have to wait and see. Well, to be honest, I was not really sure going into the film what to expect. Like John said, it's it's an extremely difficult comic to try to adapt. Probably one of the toughest ones I could think of. So seeing the publicity, really, I really hadn't made my mind up going into it, but I made my mind up after I watched it. I was a little disappointed that they released 500 stills to Facebook about a week before the the movie actually came out. It was like you could sit there and thumb through all those stills and basically watch the entire movie before I actually saw it, which I, I really don't like. I'm not a big fan of spoilers, but I really wasn't paying too much attention to the, the publicity of this film because I was, this part at least, because I was a little worried about how the whole Superman-Batman fight was going to be build because I think a lot of people misunderstand what Frank Miller was doing as far as that portion of the story. But I got to agree with you guys. This is a tough comic to adapt just in general. And I was just kind of worried that they would mess up the ending. Um, that was my viewpoint going into it anyways. My expectations were, I, I didn't think the first one was that bad. I, I didn't say it was, was horrible, but I knew that because this part deals with books three and four of the original Frank Miller series, I did feel as if it was going to be much harder to adapt that than they did with the first two books in part one. Part one, I thought, was pretty well adapted, and I was interested to see how they were going to do it. I was really hoping for it to be good because those last two books of that series, for me, are some of my favorite single issues of 
Batman comics in general because of the events that happened in it. But my expectations were pretty high, and as you'll hear, I was not disappointed. So hopefully you have the movie queued up to 0000 right as the Warner Premiere logo is about to pop up onto the screen. And hopefully you have your popcorn, your soda pop, your candy, and you are ready to go. And we will start the movie in 3, 2, 1. Now, the first interesting thing is the Warner Premiere logo is still on there, even though it was announced last year that Warner Premiere was actually being disbanded. So I found that I'm sure the film was already being was already in production when the film was first what before it was announced that that company that brand was being disbanded. But I'm wondering if this is actually one of the last films that Warner Premiere will actually be on. I think they probably did it at the same time um, and did it all as one big film and then did it and then broke it down and worked out where they were going to stop. So I think that's probably why they, they've still got the logo on there rather than developing it after they'd done the first one. Yeah, I was a little surprised to see it too. Uh, not surprised to see the new DC logo anymore though. I've gotten kind of used to that at this point. They'll put that thing on anything. <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, how in an era where they are trying to make everybody at DC Comics thin that the creators of this film decided to not do that with Lana Lang and retain the kind of pudginess from the original story. I'm just really glad that she's still included uh, you know, in, in these portions of it as well because I really thought she provided like the voice of the comic fan in the original story. I was going to say, I I think she also provides the voice of Frank Miller through a lot of this as well. Um, The way she talks and how she opinionates about Batman, I really get the feeling that's how Frank Miller thinks and writes Batman. And well, certainly before he went insane anyway. (laughs) You always have to put that caveat, the the before Frank went crazy and the after Frank went crazy. Did anyone wonder why they didn't have the doctor here, like with the Superman shirt on, though? Because I remember in in the comics, he had a a Superman T-shirt on the whole time, right? For some of it, I uh, that is kind of odd. I think the the thing was because the doctor, I believe he also had that same shirt on in the first two parts of the comic series and I think the 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 issue is that Superman wasn't in the first film so they didn't really necessarily want to make a reference but I don't know why they wouldn't it's not that big of a deal one way or the other especially if he's going to appear in part two it's almost like foreshadowing yeah I was about to say it can't be a licensing deal he's in the movie yeah and you also had like the images of him in the comics in the first movie as well in the uh, on that newsstand. That's true. That's right. You yep. see Captain America guarding the White House. Yeah, <laughs> it does kind of look like Super Soldier, doesn't it? I was going to ask, um, how do you guys in America feel about how they've they've done this portrayal? Because to me, it's very reminiscent of Ronald Reagan and. He hasn't got great uh, 
opinion ratings over in the UK, and I wondered how it was it was viewed in America and how you looked at these scenes. Well, these scenes specific. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say I was only about four years old when Ronald Reagan was in office, so I can't speak on to what the actual world was like at that point. But I don't really find anything wrong with the scenes. I know Ronald Reagan wasn't the most popular of the presidents of. Um, he was, in, in my opinion, I think he was popular here, but because he came into a presidency where the United States was kind of in a crappy position and things did get better while he was in office, but I think that he had very strong views. And I think that, honestly, the way it was portrayed in here, you know, lines up with a lot of other ways he's portrayed in a lot of other medias. There's a TV show called The Americans on FX right now that takes place in the 80s and deals with Ronald Reagan getting really pissed about the Russians being, um, you know, possibly getting a hand hand up on the uh, Americans in the whole Cold War race. And it feels as if it's like the same type of thing that we see here. So to me, it seems as if it's the same interpretation of what it probably was like. Yeah, you you had two camps, really. You had the people that thought Reagan was the greatest president ever, and you had those that thought that he was going to plunge us into a nuclear holocaust. So, you know, and you still have that debate today. I mean, the whole whole reason of putting Reagan in the book was to kind of make this more social commentary as much as a superhero story. So you kind of have Reagan in there, which is also why I've always kind of suspected that this isn't so much in the future, this is just basically the 60s Batman aged to his natural age at the time. So I always felt that this was set very much in the 80s, even though it was supposed to be futuristic. Yeah, and I think using Reagan as, as the choice for the president definitively dates the movie. Yeah. And, that, and I think and a lot of times because DC doesn't want to put actual dates on things, it's actually a good thing because the story works extremely well during the era that it was written mm-hmm. compared to if this was just, you know, a general time frame. You know, the world itself had situations where, you know, the whole Superman situation would make sense in a world like that compared to, you know, a world where, you know, there's not countries battling each other and, and you're living in the fear of nuclear war every single day. So I think it worked well. I was really surprised that they went as far with the Nazi woman as they did. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a brave fashion choice, put it like that. <laughs> well, just that, you know, for a PG-13 movie, I mean, it's not really too more, much more revealing than you would find in any of the average comics today, uh, regardless. But just for, for an animated film like this, it's kind of surprising. But I'm kind of glad they went because this whole scene feels like it's right out of the comic. You know, right down to the shop owner putting the gun to the guy's head and Batman telling him that it'll be back for him if he pulls the trigger. Here's the first time we see in this film, too, Carrie Kelly's Robin, who I think is really probably my favorite part of, of the first movie and the second movie is her character as Robin. I think it's she's really well done in this movie. Yeah, yeah I love I, the, uh, the, the covers of the comic books at the, com- at the newsstand. Everything is a DC comic. The the thing about this film in general that I that, that I was the most disappointed, and I'm not trying to be negative about the film itself, but I really miss the narration that the comic had. 
uh, because I think I think you could have pulled it off in animated form, but I think it brings something to the story. Like this whole scene we're about to get with you know Superman showing up worked so much better in the comic, you know, with all the newscasters you know breaking in with little bits of commentary here and there. You had the one guy going, you know, is it faster than a speeding bullet? And uh, you know her, her colleague going, you know, we're going to get sued if you keep this up. And that missing here kind of detracted from the movie a little bit for me. But if you had never read the book, you wouldn't know that. So the scene works for on that level as well. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think narration, especially in animated ones, as we've seen with the first Dark Knight Returns and also with Batman Year One, is, is actually really hard to pull off because you're, you're effectively talking to yourself. And there's a... Yeah, as we saw with Ben McKenzie when he did he did Batman, and I think even to a greater extent with Paul Weller, there's a tendency to do it in a very flat, monotone voice where you don't really raise anything and everything is all at the same level. And and that actually for me really detracts from the film. It really just pulls you out of the the moment. If if they kind of ignore it and get the vocalization right, I think actually you don't even need to have it. it tells its own story that's the beauty of animation i think I, but i think the 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 narration be, i think the first movie did the narration a lot better as far as incorporating a lot more news clips than this one did we saw lots more news clips setting up things i mean we saw a little bit in the beginning of the film here but for the most part overall there's not nearly as much narration in this one i think that's what we're talking about is the fact that the the news clips and that part of the narration was was less in this than the other way around one question i do want to ask before we get too far past it um so superman saves the man from being hit by the train by smashing the front of the train and derailing it instead of just grabbing the man and moving him out of the way (laughs) it put 50 people good no it was much more dramatic i guess He put 50 people in the hospital with whiplash. Was anybody kind of uh, uh, disappointed that the one jerk in the glasses that was played up a lot more in the comics is kind of severely downplayed here? I mean, I always got the sense in the comics that when he pushed that guy in front of the train that he was doing it kind of deliberately. And here he just kind of falls into him and that, you know, causes the problem. Hmm. I think that's just a matter of interpretation. I didn't, I didn't really see that as much in the comics as I felt it was kind of closer to what I thought it originally was, but I see how you could think that. I like how Reagan is wearing Clark Kent's suit. <laughs> or what they would traditionally think of as Clark Kent's suit. This entire sequence where basically everybody's passing the buck down the line is just it's perfect. Because it seems so realistic, doesn't it? Like, yeah. you could totally see that happening. Yep. Oh, it's not my problem. Let him deal, you know. I like that they maintained the perpetual look of fear and just not wanting to take responsibility of anything that the mayor had from the comics in the animated form. Well, that's what I quite like about this second movie, is that it, they keep all of Frank Miller's social commentary in there because i mean the the buck does get passed especially in british politics a lot you have 
undersecretaries who get the blame and they blame civil servants and they blame the people on the ground. So, you know, it, it, it gives, I think, it gives the, the movie a bit of meat and context and, and makes it much, very much more interesting than the, the first one. The movie definitely has a, a, a bit of a political undertone in it, as as most of Frank Miller's writing. But yeah, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, in, in this movie, it, I don't feel like that the way they did it. It's definitely there and it's subtle, but they don't throw it in, the, in your face too much. Yeah, they, they definitely focus on the action here, which makes sense because it's it's kind of like New Frontier in that case, which was full of social and political commentary in the comic. But, you know, when you're trying to adapt that into an 80-minute movie, it's a little more difficult. Um, I was a little... This, this is going to be the weirdest nitpick of, uh, of the entire movie. I was a little disappointed that we saw Sarah as much as we did in this film. Because one of the things I liked about the comic was that she was always there, and you kind of saw her in Shadow once. But she was just kind of the the non... You know, the, the, you didn't see it, but she's what kept Jim Gordon going. And, like, seeing her takes away from that uh, a little bit for me. Uh, I thought it was an odd choice to have her actually in the film. Well, especially if you look at the stuff that they cut out, you know, the things they didn't have time for, that that was the screen time was added for her does seem strange. Oh, here's the pose. I love this. (laughs) (laughs) Right out of the book. The hair, the eagle. (laughs) It's It's just great. I never noticed how on the nose that eagle thing was. I was just like, wow, that's not subtle at all. I mean, you know, corny can be cool sometimes, and that's a definition of corny being cool. Because it should be, like, utterly ridiculous with the hair and the eagle, but it works, you know. It's also the world's most homoerotic scene as well, in a kind of, (laughs) not, not in an actual erotic way. But you know, like the poses that they're doing, and it's it's a field full of butterflies and happiness, and you know, miles away from everything. And there's yeah, and Clark with his shirt open and everything like that. And you're just kind of going, mm. yeah. He so Clark does have that romance novel cover model look to it. So his middle name's Fabio, right? I liked Mark Valley as Superman though quite a bit. I thought he did a fantastic job with the role. I think he I think so too. I think that's that was that was one of the characters that they cast very well for this this film. I've liked a lot of his previous work. I, I really enjoyed the human target show, even though it didn't last more than two seasons, but I, I enjoyed that show and he was on uh, Harry's Law last year. I think he's a great actor, and I think he did a great job as Superman. I'd like to see him possibly do the role some, you know, maybe again sometime. Although, I'm wondering if they cast him because he was supposed to be an aged Superman, even though realistically in real life he's not even that old. He's probably in his upper 30s, lower 40s, around there. Yeah, I was about to say, Mark Harmon's older than he is, and he got to play Superman in the uh, Two Earths, so... They spent a lot of time in Corte Maltese in this film. A lot more than I thought they would, actually. Well, in the in in the actual comic, and I intentionally didn't read it leading up to this, so I would go into it a little more fresh. But I don't remember. I remember just a couple of panels of this kind of war going on, not this kind of detailed fight scene. Yeah, I think this is. But this is this is, I think, one of two points that actually they make their own little political 
jabs. Because um, to me, it's quite reminiscent of sort of the war on terror and the, you know, going in claiming to be liberators and how people interpret that. Are you actually liberators? Are you occupiers? And, and I, that's that's sort of the subtext that I got from that scene anyway. But it was well animated, and Superman looked good picking up the tank. So again, it's just like one of those things where you make the decision: do you want so do you do you want to do the more politically motivated stuff, or just or just a really good action scene? And uh, I, the thing is, is that Cor- you know the, the whole war with Corto Mal- or not with Corto Maltese, but with the Russians over Corto Maltese is kind of the linchpin of the end of this uh, end of this film. I am. Um, I really liked that we got to see a little more of Carrie in her civilian identity and how, you know, it's it's not like a huge scene and you don't see it really affecting her life, but basically she has to give up hanging out with her friends to go be Robin, and she is totally cool with that. She is just really excited. I loved that. It's that, it's that great line from Bruce earlier when, when Alfred asked, what if she's got something better to do? There's nothing better to do, you know? I guess if this were written today as in the original comic that the idea of a young teenage girl working for an old rich man would probably be looked at through a different set of eyes this was the first scene where we get to see the uh the killer baby dolls <laughs> those things couldn't be any more creepy could they i mean jesus oh okay, so, so real quick i just want to bring up one real quick thing about uh, the whole serving a warrant for Batman's arrest. Um, I know this is from the comics, so it's not that I'm trying to argue that it's not from the comics. I just, I want to get a perspective of what you guys thought of the actual event in the comics, but given that Batman, okay, yes, he's a killer, but he's not using guns and he's not attacking or killing the police when he attacks them, how is it just your opinion on them being able to shoot them and Ellen Yen just being, uh, just saying, you know, oh, okay, well, we're going to shoot these people up. Uh, we're going to shoot Batman, shoot him down, kill him if we need to. You know, we'll, we'll shoot down his, uh, his helicopter. What's, what's your thoughts on that? I hated it. Uh, I hated it in the comic. I hate it here because unless we're talking about a world where the police have been given more powers uh, and, and latitude in using, you know, firearms. Uh, you know, if Batman was shooting at them, they're justified in shooting back. I mean, that's that's the whole point. But to basically say, you know, like, especially she does later in the film, you know, if it's not a cop, shoot him. That's just like, okay, so you're not trying to arrest him. You're trying to execute him. And that's right. not your place. Well, I, I, well then I'll, at the same point, then you also have to think that she doesn't even care about the collateral damage to get rid of him either. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it goes back to the political aspect that we brought up before. I don't think this is a she's trying to get somebody harmful off the streets. I think this is a politically motivated thing for her. She's trying to make herself a name as the new commissioner. And she doesn't care who she hurts, but she thinks that bringing down the bat or killing the bat will make her name as the new commissioner. Which is not really cool, but I think that's her motivation. I think as well it's also because the, the, the idea that there's sort of a contrast between her and Jim Gordon 
as well to define the two and make them separate characters. Like Ed said, you know, she's trying to make a name for herself and she's she's got to do that after following Jim Gordon, perhaps the most well... I mean, who's going to... In comic book, is the most well-known cop in the... the in the universe. Well, in, so... In, in, go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, and so she's got to to do that and if she can do what Jim Gordon wasn't able to do at the start of his career like you say she's going to make a massive name for herself and you never want to be the person that follows the legend if you're a football coach or the um, CEO of a company you never want to be the guy that follows a legend which is what she'd be doing it's a tough job I found it interesting that we had Conan O'Brien as the talk show host because Conan O'Brien is basically Warner Brothers talk show host since he's the host of the only talk show that's on a Warner Brothers owned TV station. Not that I think he did a bad job, even though we haven't actually heard him talk, but it's also amusing that um, his his sidekick on the in the film was also voiced by Andy Richter, which is his real life sidekick too. Well, they were kind of the successors to David Letterman and... Uh... I can't remember the guy's name that they're referencing here. Uh, you know, they were the ones that followed in the 1230 spot after David Letterman went to NBC, uh, CBS. So it's, it kind of makes sense, really. And as, as someone who had no idea who Conan O'Brien was until he was mentioned in the film, and I, when I went and found a picture of him, he doesn't half look like somebody who, the Joker, if you gave him a chat show. I don't know if anybody else has seen that. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> but he also is pretty hip deep with, uh, you know, he's had lots of comic book references on his own show as well. So, you know, a little bit of synergy there. Yeah, he's had Bruce Tim on his show. He actually had a character. They were promoting Young Justice on his talk show a couple different times by featuring this this uh, superhero that Conan, that uh, Bruce Tim created for Conan O'Brien called the Flaming Sea. So I'm sure it was a no-brainer for, well, we need a talk show host, who do we get? I'm sure it was a no-brainer for them to figure out who to get. Although I do remember them mentioning last year at Comic-Con that uh, when Conan O'Brien, or maybe it was New York Comic-Con, when he went in to record his lines, his lines for the film, he actually did it in one take and it was perfect even the part where he's I guess laughing to death that's yeah, a pretty straightforward role too I mean he's he's supposed to be kind of a you know smart aleck talk show host so oh I was so glad when that happened I hate that character you know what did they think would happen you brought the joker on a national talk show <laughs> you know I mean Well, of course, that's another part where it differs from the comic. Um, I, I was flicking through it just before we started doing this, and he doesn't cut open the, the psychologist's throat. He he does what he does to Endocrine here and basically makes him breathe the gas. And they've also missed out um, a G- German psychologist as well. So they have made subtle changes, and I, I actually think it makes it more effective, um, uh, especially with the joke of cutting the guy's throat, it makes him seem a lot more evil and a lot darker and a lot more gritty. I don't think the target audience for this show would know who Dr. Ruth Westheimer was. 
uh, which is who that was a reference to in the comic, who was a noted... Uh, she talked. She was one of these uh, psychologists that talked about the upsides to sex a lot, and it was just her shtick, basically. So, oh, I remember that crazy old lady. Yeah, <laughs> she had a weird voice, kind of like that. Yeah, she 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 had like the thick German accent, and she would yeah. talk about sex and so. Yeah, it was basically what it was, almost in the comic, really. See, this is the things that I miss living in the UK. We have nobody like that. <laughs> I don't think we've got her anymore. I think she's dead. If she's not, she's very, very old. Because she was very, very old in the 80s. So, I do like this. the, the references. You know, Batman constantly threatening to fire her and then you know, her asking if she's fired here. I always said that's a, that's a cool dynamic they have. I always figured that was him further testing her in both the comic and the movie. Like, he's seeing what she's capable of, if she'll blindly follow orders, or if she'll improvise in the middle of a sticky situation. And I think he'd prefer to have the second than the first. Yes. Or he'd be ahead on Ellen Yendel's wall right now. Yeah, that, that woman's hair bothers me. I bet it bothers her more. It's funny that you mentioned hair because did anybody notice that any person who has red hair in in the film and the book all have the exact same haircut? <laughs> uh, I should yes. say females. Females. Yeah, with red yeah, because the y- exact same haircut. Because Yindel and Carrie kind of have a similar haircut. Yeah, and earlier there was a reporter that also looked exactly the same, and they all coincidentally all wear glasses too. Here we get more of the Superman fighting for the United States bit. Which I have issues with, but my uh, my opinion has somewhat changed since finding out some more information on it. Because uh, originally I thought this was how Frank Miller saw Superman, and uh, I was reminded recently of an interview he gave to Wizard Magazine where he said, no, this was just, you know, Superman, he change Superman's characterization to serve his Batman story. It's not that he thought that's who Superman should be. And so it's kind of, you know, on that, I can kind of look at everything Superman does in this story in a better light. Like, oh, it's it's just a different take on him. It's okay. This is more of a Batman story. It's not that anybody's dissing on the character for lack of a better term. Uh, I just think a lot of people have taken this characterization of Superman and kind of made it what they think it should be. Uh, so, but that's not Frank Miller's fault. I mean, it serves the story well. He's doing it because he basically is working for the government in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I mean, I always interpreted it as well as, in my interpretation, is is the it's also a slight reference to the different periods that Batman and Superman were created. I mean, Superman, I could be wrong, but I think was created 1920s, or certainly pre-Depression, where the American dream was quite big, and the you know America was ex- expanding and, and, and increasing itself and making itself a lot bigger and becoming the, the, the superpower that it is now. And Batman... And, and and Superman reflects that and is lighter and more patriotic, and and that's uh, to me reflected in this. 
whereas Batman's darker because he was created sort of, I think, just after the Depression. And so, you know, that had shaken America, it had shaken its belief, and and Batman comes out of that, and that's why he's darker and works outside the rules and outside the law. Uh, and and I've always thought Frank Miller reflected that, in my opinion, but I, of course I could be wrong. It's not exactly it. It's because Superman was created in 1930... It, uh, he first appeared in 1938. He was yeah, created a couple years before that. Yeah, and Batman was first appeared in 1939, so it's it's not as if... I think the, the thing is, Batman even though when he was created was a darker character, I think that changed by probably his 13th appearance when they started the actual Batman series. So I think the um, the big thing is that they, they changed Batman because he was basically the opposite of Superman. He wasn't the light, bright, patriotic person. He was the dark, brooding person who you know worked in the shadows and didn't necessarily and wanted to be more of the the legend more so than the the outright hero for everyone to see that's just my opinion though uh, superman was created to be the champion of the weak and the oppressed uh he was very much a, a depression era figure in one of his early stories he thought that the kids that he had that had gotten in trouble at the beginning of the story were getting in trouble because they had terrible living conditions, so he tears down an entire tenement so that the government will rebuild it into better housing. Uh, in, in a really odd way, uh, and I get this from a, from a book called Batman Unmasked, which was written by uh, a PhD. It was basically his thesis on Batman. Uh, where Superman actually became more of the people's friend and a symbol of order because it was more in line with how Batman was at the time. And DC was trying to clean its house and get a good perception of its characters. So it's kind of funny that everything that people don't like Superman for, or like a lot of the main criticisms of Superman, come from making him trying to be more like Batman in the 1940s. Glad they retained her dressed as Wonder Woman because I just thought that was Frank Miller's way of getting Wonder Woman into this story. And I'm really there was never really any reason ever given really for why he dressed her up as Wonder Woman either. That was just like a Miller thing. Yeah, that's 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 just how I always saw it. And this this he he's really is very affectionate towards Selena here, you know. As affectionate as this Batman can get, at yeah, least. Yeah, so. yeah as, affectionate, as affectionate as this guy gets, you know. I really liked that they, they brought back the voice of Hawkgirl to do Yindel. I thought she did a really good job with the role. I was watching this scene, waiting with bated breath to hear the words good soldier. And uh, I was really satisfied when we finally got it, because I thought that was such a powerful moment in the book. Well, yeah, because, you know, we we often forget sometimes when things were wrote. But at this time, Jason Todd was dead, and I don't think he'd ever he'd been brought back when this, this came out. You know? No, no, not at all. I mean, he, so, wasn't even, he wasn't even dead at the time, so... 
Well, he was dead, wasn't he? Because there's the the outfit on display in the cave. No, no in the in the comic in Dark Knight Returns, the character was dead, but Jason okay. was still Robin running okay. around the DC universe. God, those things are creepy. They're awful, aren't they? Especially the girl. The boy's not so bad. He he looks creepy, but the 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 girl has like some weird deformed face where basically the mask wasn't pulled the the right way over it. This is the most normal looking and thus the most cre- the creepiest Joker I think I've ever seen in animation. Because he's, I mean, if you took all the color out of him, he looks like a regular guy. You know, in a suit, basically. And that actually, combined with the voice acting, makes him scarier to me. Yeah, I think, but that's the thing that, again, Frank Miller, I think, has always got right. Um, is is Batman's relationship with the Joker. And it's, it, like you say, it's best exampled here. I mean, we've got a paler you know darker joker because he's been without batman and he's he's not had that link so he's he's started to go back i mean we saw it with with the end of of scott snyder's run um of death uh of the family he he did a similar thing you know made the joker reliant on batman and it's the same with the the storyline batman going uh going sane it, you know it's Without Batman, the Joker is nothing, and I always think that, that that's the best bit of of this and Frank Miller's writing in in total. I just love him running through this hall of mirrors and just putting people's faces into it, and he's <laughs> he's just completely out of control, and it's great. <laughs> Battering in the eye is a bold choice, too. I mean, I, I was surprised they kept it in, really, or put it in like this. But Yeah, and have the blood continuing to seep out of it kind of in, in certain shots is kind of interesting as well. Again, I think that's what makes this film a better film than the first one, is that they haven't shied away from all the gruesomeness and the disgustingness of, of Frank Miller's story like I felt they did in the first one where they sort of parred it down to try and make it more children-y. They've taken this one and, you know, really taken all the bits to heart and and it makes it so much better and meatier and much more satisfying to watch. See, and and I think that in the scene we're about to see, although I understand it's a PG-13 comic, I think that it and this is just a personal opinion. I think the tunnel love scene. I think it's they take it a little too far, really. I mean, they show and they show more on camera than I think is necessary. What's coming up here? Well, they they completely change that because it, it's only done very briefly in the comic. You you only see a couple of he he only kills two people, and Batman in the, in the narration bit goes, "Well, this is the last two people that he'll ever kill." But again, that's where I think that they're they're making a subtle political statement. Um, because you, it's you see the the Joker being stopped by a cop with a gun, and then he kills the cop. He reloads his gun and then goes on a murderous rampage. And I think, for me, if you put it in context of modern day, as you know, with the the, with the events currently in America and the gun control debate, I think that's it's my interpretation. I, I want to stress that. Um, but I think that's a statement on 
the gun control debate and the whole do do guns kill and can it does a good guy with a gun stop a bad guy and all that kind of thing and it's it's their political statement which is i think brave of them to do to be honest i don't think it's poorly executed but i think that it right here we're starting to really get into it now i think that they could have shown the shooting off off screen maybe i don't know it's just yeah but see i don't i don't know that the shooting would have came across as he was actually shooting people because like even when they show i mean like in like right there where all the bodies are laying down the, and you see all the bodies that he's killed i don't know that it if you would have had that off camera or just didn't show it and he was just shooting people or shooting in the vicinity of where you saw people, I don't think it would get the, the point across as to why Batman gets so upset about what he's doing and why he actually gets to the point where he does kill the Joker is because basically he realizes that the longer the Joker lives, the more people are going to die. And he, like the whole point of the tunnel scene, in my opinion, is to prove how badly Batman has been pushed by the Joker because of all the people that he's just randomly killing. And and I also want to be there for the meetings that they had to discuss this because, you know, with Batman being kind of associated with gun violence, uh, not his own fault. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that, but given the Aurora shooting, uh, you know, around the time that Dark Knight Rises came out to have basically a madman walking into a place where a bunch of people aren't shooting them dead uh, I was. That's what surprised me that they didn't edit it just out of. Not that I think they should have, but usually they will edit that type of thing for sensitivity reasons. But I think that's why they're making. That, but that's where I think this. This is them making another political statement and a political point because you know the Joker wouldn't have been able to shoot people if that cop didn't have a gun, and the Joker was able to reload and he wouldn't have been able to go on this murderous rampage. And it's something that is being brought up in, in America and, and to an extent in the UK about whether the, you know, cops should be armed or whether people should be armed or what's going on. And I think that's why they purposely kept this in because they wanted to make a statement, whether they're for or against, I think is, is, is ambiguous. And I'm not going to make a statement on whether they are right or wrong, but I think it's a brave choice, and I think it was the right choice, ultimately. And it is effective. I mean, I, I can definitely uh, definitely see your point there. I mean, this it effectively illustrates why this has to end with the Joker. You know, I mean, it is effective. There's no doubt about it. And that's just kind of who the Joker is, really. I mean, he's a he's a cold blooded killer, and he'll just shoot into a crowd because it's kind of his. <laughs> wow, I'm so super. I'm glad they did it, but that is still kind of a creepy thing to see of man breaking his own neck. Um... Kind of creepy, dude. It's <laughs> it's creepy. It's, it's it's flat out creepy, man. It's not kind of creepy. That's creepy. <laughs> I uh, on a uh, design element though, just just a which uh, maybe a weird time to bring it up. Um, I kind of wished that they would have gone from the Frank Miller artwork from the first issue of Dark Knight Returns, rather than how the artwork kind of changes to this bulky bulkier version later in the book, because. 
I, I really think the artwork deteriorated as the series went on as a comic. And because uh, I, I thought that first issue was dead on perfect with the way Batman looked, and his chin just kind of bugs me, uh, you know, because you know the, the, it looks like he's got a little ledge on the bottom of his face. Yeah, this is—they definitely use the um, Frank Miller Fat Man, you know, larger bodied. I'm trying to say this nicely, Batman. And the see, see this this bit coming up with the Joker. This was the only part that I thought they went too far. Where they actually showed the Joker skeleton. It's, it hasn't happened yet, but it's about it's. Uh, yeah, but that's kind of referencing the story itself, where he says, "Stop laughing at me." I love this scene too. That Batman can't shoot for nothing. You know, well, he's injured. <laughs> No, but I mean, no, no I, I liked it because to me, and it could be they're doing it because he's injured, but the way I kind of took it was this guy never uses a gun. You know? He's not a good shot because he never uses one. And again, that depends on which creator is handling him at the time because some have said he never touches them. Some says he uses, he's learned how to use them to, you know, learn the, the weapons of his enemy. You know, just all the different takes you can take with it. There's our laughing skull, another disturbing image. I wonder if they're going to rename that and you know something other than Tunnel of Love because I think it's been sullied. Tunnel of Death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Tunnel of Funny Deaths. You just you, at this point you just burn that puppy to the ground and start over. Yeah. You know build a bunch of houses on it, and you have the remake of the Poltergeist movie, so that'd be great. I like this with the uh, you know property damage deal. I This is just my weird association, seeing the neutral target and all that stuff, and the, the kind of targeting of it. I think it's funny to see that in a movie where Robocop is Batman, since that was kind of the shtick in the movie. <laughs> Not think about that. He was a little disappointing in this role. I think he was a little, a little too f- a little. Okay, I was, I was, I didn't know everyone's feelings. I was trying to be politically correct there. I thought he was flat, and I thought he could have done a lot more with the role. I'll have more to say when we get to after this entire sequence, and he is leading the uh, the Bat Children to uh, save Gotham City. That entire sequence is when I'll talk about that, but uh, yeah, he fell flat for me in 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 both regards. Mm-hmm. I think, but I think we should talk about Michael Emerson as the Joker since oh. we're, we're not obviously going to see that. I thought he did a great job. I honestly thought that it was probably one of the better Jokers that we've had compared to. Uh, well, I don't think he was nearly as good as uh, Mark Hamill, but then again. In my opinion, who can really compare to Mark Hamill? But I think overall, he did a great job when it came to, you know, being this uh, chaotic yet aged villain. I think it w- I think it worked really well. Yeah, I think it was. A, it's a really difficult role to play because we're so used to the Joker being this crazy, over the top, you know, slightly psychotic character that that Mark Hamill does so well, and and others have tried and failed to replicate. But this one is a is a completely different Joker. This is a downcast, uh, a more subtle joke, Joker, and I think it's a lot harder 
to do to do that role and I think he plays it perfectly. I don't think he'd be very good in another Batman film. I don't think it would work, but I think for this he's he's been perfectly cast in this role. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where for the story it's great. It's kind of like the in an odd way it's kind of like the Joker from the Brave and the Bold cartoon. That was their take on the Joker. So the actor they cast did the Joker that they needed for that series. And here you you did have somebody who was very reserved, but still kind of creepier, almost. Because, again, it's the normal people that scare you, you know, or at least to me. I've always thought horror is so much better when it's subtle. I, I think Mark Hamill has a lot, much larger body of work as the Joker, but I think if you look at a single presentation, a single story, this is, is, is my favorite. Because he really – Mark Hamill's Joker is very cool, and it, it fits the tone of the animated series very well, but this Joker is, like, scary time, you know. Yeah, the, I don't think that – as John said, I don't think that this would do well if it was outside of – I don't think – I think Michael Emerson would be a good Joker outside of this specific type of Joker, but I do think that he could probably make a really good Riddler if his entire career fails and he has to resort to doing animated TV shows. I think he could be a really good Riddler. Yeah, I as, think so as well. I think as I think as well. Picking up back on Ed's point about about the Joker, I think. Actually, you've hit on something quite big there. Is is really you have to look at each individual Joker in their own storylines because not each, not every Joker story or every Joker is going to be the same, and there's going to be different takes. So I don't think we can ever really say that there'll be a definitive Joker. I think there'll be the perfect Joker for each animated series. I gotta admit, as a as a child of the '80s, uh, seeing a special report uh, of a of a nuclear launch scared the hell out of me. <laughs> Brought me back to that era of when it, you know you were really scared about that kind of thing. I think the whole decision to keep this in the '80s works just remarkably well, from Reagan to the Soviets. I mean, it, it doesn't feel dated. I mean, it, it clearly is. Everyone looks skyward and comments on the nice computer effects. Who turned out the lights? This was effective. I really liked how they played this whole scene. And that the the electromagnetic pulse is so effective that it wipes out the generators as well. This was a bit much. Um... <laughs> But I didn't like this scene in the book, so there you go. So, uh, because I'm obviously not as familiar with Superman, I I want I really need to know if what he's about to do with basically sucking the living being from the Earth is actually something that has happened in other books, or if this was just something that Frank Miller did in this series. Because I was kind of taken aback by this because I was unaware that he had that ability. No. Not really. Uh, all of uh, you know his powers are solar based, uh, so sucking the energy from the uh, from the from the uh, the Earth is not something, and it's and it's not something I really saw from the story in the comic either. 
uh, I was really, when I watched this, I was really surprised that this was the direction they went in because without, without the narration from the comic, it does look like Superman's just sucking the energy out of the earth, which is contrary to, you know, how his powers work in the first place, unless you're going to go into the whole thing of photosynthesis comes from the sun. Which is what I thought they were doing. But but like I said, I was unaware that this was even a power of his to begin with. It's it's not. This is, this is one of those artistic license things that somebody came up with because it probably sounded like a good idea. I, I thought it was overblown and overly dramatic in the book and in the movie. It's just confusing. Because, again, if you've never read the book, you don't know what's going on. Uh, And I'm assuming that a lot of people who are watching this film now probably haven't read Dark Knight Returns. Uh, You know, just, you know, John Q. Public on the street picking this up at Walmart or Target. uh, You know, they're they're probably, you know, have never read the comic. So they're just going on what's being presented to them on the screen. That just shows Superman's not a nice guy. He kills flowers. Yeah, that's not the least of the things he does in this movie. But yes, yeah. <laughs> I'll agree with that. He's I mean, a jerk. <laughs> I mean, sucking some flowers, being a tool for a fascistic government. Hmm. Let's 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 weigh those two. You you have never seen a Batman story where he goes out of his way to annihilate a whole field of beautiful flowers. You've also never seen a Batman story where he went to his bedroom closet and got his outfit. <laughs> Well, this is in the future where he has nothing to do except for dress up like Batman. Now, if you go into the Batcave, that's where he has all his his disguises that we've seen him wear throughout the film, like the old woman, the police detective. <laughs> the uh, kind of reminds me of the Batman's. I forget which serial it was, but Bruce and Dick go to change into Batman and Robin, and they go over to a filing cabinet and get their costumes. It's just like, wow, low budget. <laughs> That's where we keep him at, man. Those filing cabinets are tough to get into. This is this this scene. Um, I know Dustin's going to talk about it in a second, but um, I'm jumping in because I'm. It's a point I raised on on the normal cast as well. Is this is where Paul Willis shows that he can't play Batman. I've never heard such a flat, boring, dull, tedious speech in my entire life. I I don't know how he convinces these people to go. With him, if you look at like the great orators, you know they really make powerful speeches and they really drag you along emotionally. And he just he fails so badly at this, and it just highlights how weak I think he is in the the entire thing. Yeah, basically, is I'm agreeing with that completely. the The entire and this isn't just for this film; it's also for the part one of the same film. Peter Weller, in general. I think he is probably the worst actor out of the group of voice actors for both films. Uh, the biggest problem is that we have a character who's supposed to be, you know, basically a leader, and whenever he talks to a group of people, whether it be in this film or the last one, he doesn't come across as somebody I would actually feel I would be motivated to actually follow. He just comes across as. Uh, I am doing this because I don't have a choice, so do it or I'm going to beat you up. And, like, that's not, to me, what the character should have been. I feel as if, I mean, obviously they got the age down as far as uh, Batman having the older older voice, but I don't think that 
Peter Weller was probably the best choice they could have gotten for this role because, um, I, and the thing is, like when he's talking to Carrie Kelly, I don't think he's as bad. I don't think it's you know when I think when he delivers those lines like you know good soldier or you know do this or you're going to get fired. I think that he delivers those lines well. But whenever he's giving a speech to multiple people or even even another example is when he is you know talking to Alfred and stuff. It, just seems completely out of character and part of it has to do with the interpretation from the book but I think obviously you can, can't interpret the voice that that much other than based off of the dialogue and I feel as if Peter Weller could have I don't I'm not going to say he could have done a better job because he doesn't to my to to my knowledge hasn't done a lot of voice work to begin with, so there's not a lot to compare it to, but I think that they could have probably gotten someone to do a better job, you know, overall, compared to just aspects of the film. I was really disappointed in how they played out that whole normal people versus the mutants before Batman shows up scene that we just saw. Because one of the things I love about the book is that the narration during this sequence is all basically in the past tense. We're seeing news footage from after everything goes down. And in that, it was just two normal groups of people fighting over resources. And you had like a priest on one side and the jerk in the glasses on the other. And in this, it's normal people versus chaos and they're all fighting, and Batman kind of gets them together, and it's just not as effective because it, 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 it on a kind of a thematic level, it just shows that during a time of crisis, people can be kind of evil and not really mean to be, but it takes a strong leader to pull them all together. And we kind of get that here. It's just not as effectively done. I think it just goes back to... The, the presentation of the actual speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I agree with you about Peter Weller. Just he was just it was kind of disappointing. <laughs> the, the speech is bad, and the, and the other one that really got me when you talk about his lack of uh, emotional range in this is the scene with the Joker, where he's like, "No more," but it's like not. I mean, he doesn't even get excited. It's not. Yeah, he's fine when he has a conversation, but yeah, if he, any type of level of excitement, he just nothing. I don't even think when he's having a conversation, I mean, some of the conversations he's had with Carrie Kelly sound downright creepy. <laughs> when he's going good soldier, I just, I feared for her. It was, it's just, so, it was so bad. John's like, no, not the hell, it's awful, I hate him. Oh, I, I hated him the first time round. If, if you get a chance, listen to the first commentary, and I, I lay into him so much more than this. He's just—I <laughs> have nothing good to say about him in this. He—he's—he's—I he's, I went back and watched RoboCop, and it's—it's it's exactly the same voice, and he's terrible in that as well. <laughs> it's just you know. It, I don't know if I, I go that far, but I see what you're saying. <laughs> so emotionally dead. This is a Batman. Yeah, but see, when he was in RoboCop, he was a robotic cop. Yeah, it, that was it rather the point. I mean, that, you know, him having kind of the dead robotic voice was because he was fighting for his own humanity. And at the end, you know, when he and he's like, you know, they'll put you together, that was actually kind of him being human for a moment. Uh, but here you needed 
you know, there there is the there are people that like Batman to be kind of the emotionless, you know, cold driven person. But to me, Batman's so much better when he's presented like that to the public. But in private, you get to see what's going on behind his, you know, behind the cowl, basically. And if he's talking the same to Carrie when they're in battle as they are at the Batcave, then that Bruce Wayne is just broken as a human being. Well, and, and that's and goes, somebody I want to follow. It goes to the, the the point we're talking about. You know, would would anybody follow him after that speech? I wouldn't. I wouldn't follow him into the door of my own house. You know, I mean, it's just there's nothing there that would make you want to follow this guy. I mean, he, he breaks a gun in half, which is kind of cool and tough, but you know, yeah. Which is like the money moment of the book. I mean, yeah. that whole speech is. <laughs> I feel bad for that soldier. He has such a lousy job. I'm just going to stand in front of the gate. That's all I'm going to do. But no, he, you know, just, you know, it's just, you know, these are the weapons of the enemy. And it's just like, wow, okay, I'm on board with you. Why is get, he wearing the glasses? Why is, why is he, he in a suit? <laughs> I mean, earlier he met with, with the president in his Superman costume, and now he's meeting him in a suit. Just pick something. If they had gone in the direction that it was him fighting, you know, duty over his own conscience, then that would have worked about him being Clark Kent, because that's, you know, to most people, his human side. But here, he's just like, you want me to bring him in? Okay. I don't quite like it, but I'll do it. And it's just, I don't, I don't get anything of an internal conflict here, which is why the fight bugs me in a way that it doesn't really bug me in the comic. Well, the other aspect of it is, you, you were sitting here and we just see Batman basically stop the city from basically rioting itself to death. And in turn, the president's like, okay, it's time, to, time for you to go in and take out Batman. It's like, wait, didn't he just save Gotham City by having the people join with the criminals? Isn't that a good thing? This just yeah, makes the government look petty. Yeah, well, I think this is the the first point that you can really start tracing the decline of of Frank Miller in where he just turns Batman into this weird, screamy, crazy, weird character, and he's constantly everything's against him, which, like you say, just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And I think that's just poor characterization on the part of. A Frank Miller, if I'm being, frankly, really, really critical. I'm glad that Bruce was able to buy some of the props from the 1989 Batman film and just yeah. have them lying around. That was a that was some good use of yeah. his money. With all the things that they took straight out of the comics, clearly that was not one of them. And 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 the thing is, what I don't like about this scene is that all it's doing is showing. Okay, the suit makes him stronger. And and maybe you could have done that with some, you know, some dialogue or whatever, but showing him lifting up the Batmobile was just kind of a little over the top for me. Like in The Dark Knight Rises, where he kicks through a brick wall after getting that knee thing. You're going, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. That was an awesome mustache. So basically, the government has blacked out the news and 
cordoned off a, a certain uh, area of the city, except for the people that live in the buildings around it, apparently. They're allowed to stay. Why don't they have this fight in the middle of a field or something? I mean, why do you want to destroy the city? It's irresponsible for both of them, quite frankly. Well, we already know that Batman doesn't care. So That's true. <laughs> that just proves the point, I guess, of why the government wants to take Batman out more so. But at the same point, it's just as if, you know, what's, what's really the uh, purpose of Superman agreeing to it instead of saying this is what's going to happen? And why do they need to have the military cordon off the area so that the two of them can fight compared to, you know, any any other situation where, oh, okay, these two are going to fight. Well, if it's going to f- be a fight between those two, then why does the army have to get involved at all? Or why I is think- Superman even involved? You got a tank. He's Batman. He's standing there. Shoot him with a tank. You know? Game over. I think the the moving it into the city is is uh, the way I interpreted it was this was Batman being actually quite clever because you know Superman doesn't particularly want to hurt innocent civilians. I mean, you see it when he rips open the tank, Carrie Kelly's inside, and he just goes, "Well, isn't it time? You know, it's a little late for you to be out on a school night." He doesn't want to hurt innocents, so he's going to hold back yeah, a bit more, which gives. Yet he throws the tank that she's in. Yeah, but he does like a little toy car. Yeah, but he doesn't know that she's in there until the that moment, does he? That's the thing. But it's it's giving Batman a fighting chance because, as much as I'm a Batman fan, I mean, in a fight, Superman's just going to rip Batman in half. <laughs> Thank you for saying that, <laughs> John. You might be out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. know. It's a Batman podcast, and I'm siding with Superman. I I realize the irony of that. Well, here's the thing, and and, and I think that that's another thing that is, it's not Frank Miller's fault. It's the fault of the people that, you know, it's it's like the people who have followed in Frank Miller's footsteps as far as Superman and Batman, you know, they answer, you know, they got the answer, but they really didn't understand the question in the first place is, one, these two really shouldn't be fighting in the way that they're fighting. Uh, you know, here it makes sense, because it's a specific story where Frank Miller has structured everything, made Superman a certain way to serve that story, so yeah, they have to go at each other. But in the normal day-to-day DC universe, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Because even if you're going to go with a Batman that doesn't trust Superman, or at the very least, they don't like each other's crime-fighting styles, at the end of the day, they're both doing the same thing without killing people, so I don't see why they should have to be fighting all the time anyways. Yeah, but you have to, I mean, you may not, because you're a big Superman fan, but I just love watching Batman punch Superman in the face. I'd love it. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure that's that's part of the reason <laughs> why it's been done so many times, is because people want to have a winner one way or the other. Someone, you know, and then ultimately it's the writer who decides who wins in the battle. But, you know, that's why we've seen it so many times is because the fans would love to have their heroes go against each other. That's such a wonderful way of doing things, though. It is, and that's why we only have seen so uh, so many fights between them. But I think that this is probably... 
the best fight, even if it is the most convoluted fight. I do like the inclusion, too, of Oliver Queen in this. Yep, yep. I think that's really cool. And his his having a missing an arm came up much later in the comics when he died back in 1995, I believe it was, where in the final moments of his life, Superman sears off his his arm um, to try to prevent him from doing something. So it was just, it's like there were a lot of echoes later that creators brought into uh, the mainstream books from this, you know, futuristic tale that wasn't supposed to be in continuity. And it's always good. They did the same thing with Kingdom Come, though. So, you know, there was a lot of moments in Kingdom Come that started to come to pass in the in the regular reality. I mean, there was a, there was a real thing back when Jason Todd died in 88 that, oh, is this going to turn into The Dark Knight Returns? Uh, which, just, you know, proving the fan speculation really hasn't changed over the last 30 to 40 years. But I think, you know, that's only natural if you're going to include a, you know, it, it, it's a good story. I mean, before... Frank Miller starts writing, stopped writing Batman and, and writes a character I, Linkara likes to call Crazy Steve, who's not <laughs> Batman at all. And I don't think that there's a problem, even if at the time they say it's out of continuity, if it's a particularly great story, you're trying to bring it into continuity and, and adding it into, into the universe fold. Now, Frank Miller doesn't want that anymore because he says it's his own little universe, but... I think that's a, that's a good thing, and it, it makes the universe stronger, ultimately. The only problem of, uh, that I really see is that to have Dark Knight Returns happen, you have to have Batman quit for ten years. So, Well, that, I mean, that, that you know, I, I would even cover with... with um, oh, uh, Batman Beyond. Mm. You know... You could even fit that in there and, and argue about how it fits in and, and goes around and and works and whether he's been forced to come back. I mean, obviously, there's question marks over age and things like that, but... Is Oliver Queen wearing a prison jumpsuit still? He's been out of prison for, like, five years. You would have thought he would have found another outfit. He's, atta- he's attached to it, you know? I do like the one-armed archer, though. This is just... Makes Oliver Queen seem like a, a real bad man. In a good way. A man who is so upset that he became bald that he just grew the rest of his hair out. <laughs> There's a British comedian that he looks like called Bill Bailey. And Bill Bailey has exactly the ha- same hairstyle and exactly the same beard. It's quite <laughs> creepy. I'd, I'd, if you can look him up, it's, it's the same person. Inspiration for Oliver Queen. This is just a really dynamic scene, though. I love the the shots of him running across the rooftops and everything with the snow and the background. I mean, visually, this is a very stunning fight. Um, and, and and you know, yeah, it's heavy. You know, as a Superman guy, even though I love Batman, as a Superman guy, first and foremost, it is kind of oh man, you're, you're you're going a little too far, but. Beyond that, I enjoyed what I saw. You know, it's like the 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 little kryptonite dots here it just it just looked amazing mixed in with the snow. 
it's it's fun. I, I don't know if logically it makes any sense whatsoever, but it is fun. It's fun to watch. It's it's yeah. I totally. Agree. And of course, being a giant Batman fan, it's it's awesome because you see Superman, the epitome of what a hero could be, having basically brought to his knees by Batman. Oh, because in this film, he's lost his way. Which is why I like the end scene with him. Is it's, it's kind of you get the sense that it's him kind of coming back around to what he should be. Because in my mind, and this is just me being a Superman fan, if Superman ever went down the path of being kind of a tool for the government, there 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 would have to be some kind of reasoning behind it. And eventually, he would come to the conclusion that he can't be that. Because in, in this universe, is basically like okay. Because he is the preeminent hero, he would side for the government with the government automatically. And I just, in just about any iteration of Superman, I've never really seen that. I think as well, it, it, it reflects on their relationship. You know, really, when you look at them, ultimately, I think Bruce and Batman is the only person who could actually do what was required to stop Superman. And that's, I think, reflected in this the whole fight scene is that Bruce is willing to do what has to be done to to win and I think sometimes it suffers when writers forget that and that's when we get rubbish storylines but that's why this one works so well because Frank kind of does understand these characters and and the the makers of the film understand the characters as well and that comes across all the way through I think and to be fair, the government that Batman is fighting against is something that should be fought against. So Batman ultimately is in the right here. You know, and the way he wants to do it is the way it, it, it kind of has to be done because the system is fundamentally broken, which is the entire point of Batman in the first place. Because if the system worked just fine, he wouldn't need, he would have done something else with the energy of losing his parents. Poor Clark, all bruised up at the funeral. Man, that is right out of the comic. <laughs> There's some flowers there in Bruce's grave. Why don't you just suck them dry and make himself feel better? Because <laughs> they're already dead. I love this exchange between Gordon and, and Clark. Cause I, I get the feeling that Gordon knows exactly who he is. And just that, you know, what you're a friend of his, I really don't know figures and he walks off (laughs) well I mean it's logical because Jim knows Bruce is Batman so presumably Batman's probably told him who everybody else is as well just as a maybe as a safeguard or as a if you ever need if I ever disappear you can phone the Daily Planet and ask for Clark Kent or Jim's a great detective and he realized the guy standing in front of him, if you took the glasses off, <laughs> bared an uncanny well, that's, resemblance. That's why I've always been of the opinion that no matter the, the iteration, Jim Gordon should know that Bruce Wayne is Batman, even if he doesn't say that he knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman. He's got to figure that out. Otherwise, he's the world's worst detective. Yeah, exactly. In my head, he always knows. He just doesn't say anything. Because it's you'd have to make him a fool not to, and I don't like believe that, in a fool. 
It's like that moment in year one where he goes, you know, I can't see anything without my glasses, which was me taking it. You know, I know who you are, but I'm going to I have, you know, plausible deniability at this point. Well, yeah, because if his eyesight was that bad, his glasses would be as thick as a door. You know, (laughs) (laughs) and here's the bat gang. This the the ending to this though felt a little stretched out because and and that's only because of when you compare it to the comic which just kind of has them it's just one page and that gives you everything you need to know about it here you kind of have to show what he's doing and that makes it feel like it goes on just a tad too long I just uh, I, I hope with all that is holy in the world that they don't make the sequel of this story uh, into a movie. I doubt they ever will. That's no, that readable. I, I think I think that has been so universally panned by everybody. Uh, I mean, I know like a few people that have good things to say about them uh, about the story, but I think you know, just on just about every level, that story failed because uh, this isn't something you need a sequel to, like Watchmen and like Kingdom Come. The point of this is to take off the costume and work in the shadows. And, now, and that's all Bruce wants to do now. You know, he goes, I, I spent 10 years developing a good death. Now I want to have a good life. And that, you know, so we're going to work in secret. So you don't need him getting back into the costume. Now that we hit the credits, I question for everyone real fast. What's the next Batman animated would you like to see them do? Does anyone have a preference for the next story? Yeah, but they won't do it. But, Batman No Man's Land. Oh, uh, yeah. Love to see it. I, I, the problem is I feel as if they did it... Be, well, one, they have... If they do it off the collected versions of the, of the uh, trade paperbacks, they have four volumes at this point, and I don't... I th- they would just have to chop it up so badly in order to make it work, and I, that's not something that I would want to, them to do. I would not want to see it chopped up at all. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing Nightfall, but I definitely would love seeing No Man's Land more so. As to what I think they'll do next, I don't think that they they have any idea. They'll probably end up start doing some like weird interpretations of some recent stories uh, I'm sure we'll see something from Scott Snyder at some point since we've started to get uh, some Jeff John films or films based off of Jeff John's uh, works that are popping down the line. So I'm sure it's just a matter of time before we start seeing stuff from um, Grant Morrison's Batman. Yeah, I was about to Scott say, right, he, I would like to see A Lonely Place of Dying. You I, know what I'd I like? That is a lot of emotional punch to it. This may sound idiotic, what I'm about to say. But I've always wanted to see Gotham by Gaslight. I I think that would be awesome, but I don't know that that would... I I think it would be really cool. Um, But I just... The problem is I don't think DC looks at that and says, yes, let's let's put our resources into a movie around this. (laughs) But I think think the story and the art of that that graphic novel is amazing. Yeah, I even really like the sequel to it, too. Master... Oh, yeah, Master Future. Yeah. The uh, just that costume design is just amazing as well. I uh, part of me would like them to do a straight up death in the family, but since they already did under the red hood, they probably kind of already did that in a way uh, and did it well. I, I enjoyed under the red hood quite a bit, though. 
mainly because they kind of fixed what I saw the main problem with the return of Jason Todd, and that's how he came back. And that movie kind of put that into such a way where it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. So, But yeah, we're probably going to see R.I.P. I, I bet you anything it's going to be something like that. You know what? Since every time they make a new Batman animated series, why doesn't somebody just make an animated series and do No Man's Land over the space of like 22 episodes? It'd be awesome. Yes, that would be awesome. Yeah, you could you could do one season where you have sort of Asriel Nightfall and then Night's End. Yeah, um, and then you, you just do... do a TV series that does nothing but adapt all of the major <laughs> events from the Batman comics in the nineties. <laughs> We'd be that some would be awesome. Happy guys. <laughs> yeah, there'd be a lot of really happy people. Oh, definitely, because you know, like all of the people who were young in the '90s that got into the animated series and the comics are just now hitting, you know, like their mid twenties and thirties. So it's just like there's your built-in, you know, <laughs> disposable income audience. I'd bankrupt myself. I'd release one a week. I'll take it again. Give it to me on Blu-ray. Let's go. <laughs> I bet I, I bet they'll do. I, I have a strong feeling, and I have no sources, but I think that the next Batman they'll do will be the Killing Joke. Uh, I have no source. No, it just sounds like I don't. I no. You know what? I don't think that it's going to be the next one, but I do think they will do it because what's going to happen is I think some years have to pass before it happens. But I think because Mark Hamill's not doing the Joker anymore and he has said on record multiple times that if they did the killing joke, he would come back. I think they will do it, but they th- that it's going to be a couple more years before that, that actually happens. The other aspect of that is, is, as great as I like Mark Hamill as the Joker, I don't know that Mark Hamill's Joker would actually fit into the killing joke as well as you know somebody else. And that would be my only concern because he has been so vocal about not only them doing it, but him being able to, he would voice the Joker in it. That is what concerns me because his Joker is nothing related to the comics. It's always been about the animated series. I think Emerson's Joker that we just saw here would be a better fit for the killing joke than Hamill's Joker. Yep. And as long as they change the very last page of that I'd be fine because I I was never down with a Batman that right after his former partner was shot and crippled and his best friend was humiliated that he would just sit there and share a chuckle with the guy that did it all. I mean it just always bugs me. It's like there's so much of that story I like and so much of it that I don't. You know, to accept that last scene in The Killing Joke, you have to make the mental leap that Batman is as unstable mentally as the Joker is. Yeah, do. but I don't. I don't like that though. I, I, I don't either. But I, I, I like to think of Batman as being very sane. You know, it's it's a, a there's a great podcast called Hey Kids Comics where the one of the hosts Andy made the point that Batman is how Bruce Wayne stays sane. Instead of snapping, he put all of his energy into this persona, and that's why him. That's why the Joker being his arch enemy works, is because Batman's all about order and Joker's all about chaos, as hundreds of people have pointed out in the past. Wait a minute, Joker's all about chaos? Yeah, I know. Shocking, isn't it? Wait, wait, wait what? <laughs> you think someone would have told me about that before now? Let's let's just do our overall thoughts. I think this film was really great. It's moved up to number two on my top list of animated films and I think that 
the only thing that I would have changed is a different voice actor to do uh, Peter Weller, but I think that the animation was spot on, holding true to what we originally saw in the the comics. I thought I loved the story. If you don't compare it to just the comic, and just looking at it from a standalone movie, I think it was it was dead on, except for Peter Weller's voice. If you compare it here to the source material, I still think it was a very, very good adaption to what they could have done. I mean, they, they took scenes straight out of the book, and bam, there they were in animated form. So I think they did a good job with that, too. I think this is a massive step up from the last film. It's not strong enough to break into my top two, but it's certainly headed in the right direction. Ariel Winter really steps up and becomes a lot better. Michael Emerson produces perhaps one of the second best Joker I think I've heard in a long, long time. Peter Weller, he unfortunately is the downside in the entire thing. He's he's probably the weakest out of all of them. I certainly agree with Dustin. I would have cast someone completely different. I think it's nice as well that the film actually had the balls to go out and keep a lot of what Frank Miller did in there to make it dark and, in my opinion, to make some interesting political statements. It was something that very much lacked in the first one, which made it such a toothless joke of a film. And I, I think if they carry on doing it in this in this vein, I think the films are only going to get better. I think that, you know, I really like this this movie. In my mind, I can't separate the two movies. I know they're separate, but to me, it just becomes one long movie. And it's it's probably my third favorite animated feature. But I really like the movie, and I think that any time we can get kind of the classic comic books done in animated form, I'm always going to be for them. I share some of the same problems with, with Weller's voice acting, but the rest of the cast, Ariel Winters and Michael Emerson and the rest of the cast is really, really good, so it it kind of makes up for it. And I, I think it's a really, really good movie. I enjoyed it more than the first one. And, and I liked the first one overall. I share everyone's disappointment in Peter Weller, who I think when he was announced, everyone went yay. And then you kind of see what, you know, what the result of that was. It just, maybe they should have pushed him a little more in, in the recording studio. I think that they missed some of the better elements of the comic. But taking the comic element out of it flowed nicely. You know, it it, it didn't drag in any particular part. And I, I just, I, I was very impressed with the Joker and, and his end. I mean, that was just, it's like if the movie had ended there, it would have been almost satisfying. So I liked it. So if you had to give it a rating, what rating would you give it out of five batterings? I'd give it three and a half. Four out of five. Uh, I'd give it four as well. And I would give it four out of five batterings as well. So there you have it, Batman the Dark Knight Returns Part 2. That is all we have for this specific episode. Be sure to check out the commentary feed for all of the other animated films as well. And now that we've actually caught up for the time being with the animated films, we are going to start exploring some of the animated TV series And one of the first things that we have been requested to do is the combination of the world's finest episodes. So hopefully Michael Bailey will come back for that. And we will hopefully be posting that next month. And then we also have Lego Batman that will be releasing in the future as well. 
but uh, we're going to start branching off into the animated series and World's Finest has been something we've been requested for a long period of time and we just held back on it because it was one of the TV series and it was just adapted into a actual combination of a film. So that is one of the next ones that are on the plate, so be sure to be checking out the commentaries feed for that. Be sure to check out the website, thebatmanuniverse.net, for all the latest news regarding movies, TV, merchandise, video games, general, and of course the comics. And be sure to check out all of our other podcasts we have to offer, including the Comic Cast, we have the Batman Universe Bat Fans, the Batman Universe Specials, the Batman Universe Interviews, the Batman Universe Villain Wall, our newest podcast, the Batman Universe Taking Flight and as well as Batgirl Oracle. Check out all of those podcasts over at the website. And of course, check out Michael Bailey's stuff. Michael, tell them where you can, they can find your stuff. Views from the Long Box can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Uh, from Crisis to Crisis, which is a Superman podcast to do with Jeffrey Taylor, can be found at the Superman homepage and at the Superman Podcast Network. Uh, Bailey's Batman Podcast, which is a new episode about to come out of that pretty soon. Uh, is at baileysbatmanpodcast.com and my blog is fortressofbailytude.com Alright, so be sure to check out all of those and that should keep you occupied until we have another commentary release. So until then, this is Dustin. This is John. This is Ed. This is Michael. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Commentaries. We'll see you guys next time. Peter Weller, more wooden than my table.